Irish has now the same status as other European Union languages. Interpreting and live captioning is likely to increase in 2022 with the return of live events. People with a background in translation bring a very different perspective to using machine translation than people who don't. And welcome everyone to SlaterPod. Hello there, Esther. Hey, Florian. How are you? Oh, good. Today we'll talk about the Empty Literacy Project, uh, which we have Dr. Lynn Baukeron, professor at the University of Ottawa. And I'm not going to give too much away. I just tell you they make fantastic infographics, but we'll tell you mm -hmm. more in our discussion with uh, Professor Baukeron. So first, you'll give us a quick update about TransPerfect's uh, quite good 2021. Uh, we'll also talk about Ayuno's billion-dollar valuation. Then we'll take a quick journey north from where you are to Ireland, well, west and north, so to Ireland and Scotland, where translators are so hard to find that roles at the European Union remain unfilled and that Google Translate apparently is being used for comic relief. And there's, you know, those are two stories and we'll connect the dots for you. Okay. In one second. Sounds good. First, tell us more about TransPerfect billion dollar year. Yeah, well, I don't want to say it was sort of the major news of, uh, of January because there was many other stories, but I know that, you know, <laughs> there were a lot of exciting stories, but I think a lot of people in the industry were kind of watching on to see whether TransPerfect would succeed in um, clearing that billion dollar mark in annual revenues in 2021. They looked like they were on track in sort of Q2, Q3. Um, and yes, news coming out of TransPerfect um, from a couple of days ago is that they have broken that billion dollar barrier and are well, reported revenues of $1.1 billion in 2021. So not only have they kind of cleared it, but I mean, they've quite decidedly cleared the billion dollar hurdle uh, with sort of 100, 100 million extra. Uh, so that's in just, doing so, yeah. And that's just uh, adjusting. If you're just for inflation, then they just came at the billion. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Is that right? Okay. okay. I trust you. Um, yeah, well, so they've retained their spot as well um, as the world's largest uh, LSP by revenue. Obviously, there was a somewhat of a tussle between RWS and TransPerfect in the financial uh, results game. Um, RWS obviously having acquired SDL, doubling in size, um, weren't too sure what their revenues were going to come in at for the full year. Um, but yeah, TransPerfect retained uh, the top spot uh, this year, 20, well, 2021. Um, they also grew. I mean, they grew considerably, 31%. They added something like 260 million on top of their revenues from 2020. Um, and more than 80% of it was organic. So as much as they did do acquisitions and most notably of semantics in 2021, um, sort of the overwhelming majority of growth was organic uh, during the year. That's a lot of translations sold. So Indeed. a lot of commissions dispersed among the, I don't know, 400, 500 um, TransPerfect Salesforce. So yeah, good. In terms of the sectors, I think you said tech went well, right? Plus yeah, good traction with Global Link, good traction with yeah. machine translation. They said that generally sort of... Uh, Growth was based across the sectors, although they did call out a couple of special mentions. They said, for example, travel and hospitality is continuing its recovery and it's expected to outperform in 2022. 
gaming also they said they're continuing requirements from their gaming customers also in terms of a link linked to ending of the pandemic restrictions they said interpreting and live captioning is likely to increase in 2022 with the return of live events so things to watch out for in the year to come so they got they got some money to spare to litigate with Limebridge Uh, whatever the next step is there. And we spoke about it last time. Uh, Now, I'm not sure if the spare cash lying around a corporate treasury at TransPerfect would be enough to acquire Iuno SDI because Mm. it's now valued at a cool 1.2 billion. I mean, valued at basically they raised um, some financing from a Korean investment firm that valued the company at that. So, you know, it's basically that's what the... This company called uh, this firm called IMM Investment Corp was willing to pay. But tell us more mm. about that. So that's a big additional yeah. uh, injection of cash into Ayuno. Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, it's it's good that we're now discussing billions and, and not just hundreds of millions. Sort of generally when we're talking about billions. these topics, whether it's revenues, whether it's valuations. Um, this is obviously at the very top of the food chain. But yeah, that mega one point two billion valuation, as you said. Um, saw IMM Investments, so the new investor, come on board with IUNO SDIs. Let's not forget the SDI in the SDI in the IUNO SDI group. Um, they yeah come on board with the existing investors. So IUNO SDI has a number of investors, including two that they or IUNO inherited when they acquired BTI uh, back in 2019, as well as SoftBank Ventures Asia and SoftBank Vision Fund Two. That latter, so the Vision Fund 2 contributed or made an, a $160 million investment back in 2021, I think around, yeah, not quite a year ago, um, and also David Lee. So there are no majority stakeholders. Um, there are only significant minority uh, shareholders, which includes the meetings. CEO. So, yeah, yeah, well, it includes the CEO, which David Lee, um, who founded the company. Um, and yeah, I guess was this one of the at least the the major shareholder until um, well, while they while they were bootstrapped up to about sort of 20, 2009, 2010 or something like that. Um, yeah, so we don't know the exact revenue figures coming out of the of the company yet. Um, obviously, they well they acquired SDI to become SDI, Iuno SDI Group in twenty twenty one. Roughly speaking, when Iuno and SDI were separate entities, the combined revenues were around 400 million in 2020. Um, the company did tell us that growth was in the double digits um, in 2021. So you're probably looking at at least kind of 400, 450 upwards um, for 2021 figures when they emerge, uh, which is, yeah, double digit growth for them. Soon. And, and you, many you others in Chris Carey. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you you spoke to Chris Carey, the EVP Corporate Development. So, what did he tell us that they're going to hire a bunch of into English in, uh, dubbing, uh, you know, experts or bi- not, spe- not specifically. Or I mean, not no? not not in such specific terms. I'm sure that they're yeah they're hiring or general sort of talent recruitment will involve into English, which we know is a, a growing area for the media yeah. localization industry. Uh, I mean, generally said they want to. Um, you know, address the capacity shortage. Uh, I mean, that's kind of in broad terms, but they want to um, focus on training and education of talent um, and also building or, I guess, and or acquiring new studios and making studio upgrades to address uh, those kind of capacity shortages and challenges. I mean, just by way of um, 
highlighting, I suppose, the growth and, and, and where that challenge in resourcing this, um, well, these this industry, these services, dubbing, subtitling, etc. Um, Chris told me that um, so when it comes to the streaming platforms, they're now doing more subtitling and dubbing languages than they have done in the past. Okay, fair enough. He said they're now doing 12, 18 or, or 30 or more dubbing languages. Um, so wow. pretty much like as standard for any particular series or production or whatever. Um, and 40 to 50 subtitling languages. And that is becoming the rule rather than the exception now. So it's a greater number, greater language coverage generally. Um which is yeah pretty pretty impressive when you think you have to juggle all of that as a media localization provider. See that's what makes this sector very interesting, right? It's like mm. technical documentation where it very quickly it kind of it spirals into, you know, the double digits, 20, 30, yeah. 40 lang target languages. I mean then just, you know, we know, right? And public sector experience. EU is also like the yeah, 20 it's, it's, 23 24, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it just it just goes more uh, and, and but if you think about all yeah. the complexities involved in those services as well, it's not just yeah. the text; it's the voice and it's the it's the alignment of of the subtitles and everything else. Um, tons, tons. Yeah, and uh, I think yeah. also just one one last thing I'll say on that really is is to do with um, well, they're talking about obviously technical development, leveraging AI, machine learning, etc., trying to improve automation. Um, and also making strategic investments. Uh, and one thing they caught that Chris was kind of commenting on as well is that um, the the likelihood of expansion into adjacent markets. Um, so he said, you know, subtitling, dubbing for the enterprise and corporate sectors, um, and services for live experiences uh, among the kind of likely adjacent or natural adjacent markets that that our university I might expand into, um, and that you can kind of build on film and tv build on your experiences in film and tv which is the creative pinnacle he called it to then deliver um, similar services to other sectors also so it good starts luck to, them. to merge it starts to mm. merge because those two kind of whatever ecosystems or sub industries have always been so separate right you had the entertainment dubbing subtitling industry and then you had uh -huh. kind of the localization translation industry and you know you could see over the years for example transperfect went from like providing like you corporate know, kind of, to media, yeah, corporate to film type of stuff. Yeah. yeah, now they're going into dubbing and subbing, and now you know IUN is coming the other way. So yeah, it's going to get really competitive. Um, mm. You mentioned European Union language coverage, um, and yes. it's 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 width and breadth. And on January first, twenty twenty two, there was a special day for one oh, yeah. particular <laughs> language that was added. Which language? No, it actually <laughs> which language? Uh, Irish Gaelic. So they call it Irish on uh, that particular um, European Union website, European Commission's website. So mm. Irish was, uh, I don't even know how to put that. So it was the end of the derogation of Irish. I don't know what that means. <laughs> it means it now Irish has now the same status as other European Union language. So uh. basically it means that after uh, the phasing out process uh, of this derogation, uh, it lasted several years that the derogation was basically a partial or temporary exemption from the obligation to publish every piece of European Union leg legislation in all the official languages. So, mm. you know, in the past, you didn't have to publish, well, that's a quote, right? Uh, every piece of U European Union legislation in Irish. Um, and so Irish had that particular status among the other 23 official languages. But now mm. derogation's over and translation's <laughs> going uh, full throttle there. So... 
uh, they said that uh, you know this had obviously they had to ramp up uh, capacity. They say that the European Commission mm -hmm. says that this led to a dramatic increase in Irish capacity in the European Union Commission, especially in the Director General for Translation. I mean, we reported before that there was just a lack of um, of translators for Irish generally because you know uh -huh. it's a I, I don't I'm actually not familiar with how many people speak it, but it's it's got to be relatively few. Um, mm. And lo and behold, another story this week that we actually wrote about was that the European Union awarded the Director General of Translation awarded a 12 million euro contract, translation contract, with the only um, uh, language. So it was Bulgarian, Croatian, Lithuanian, Maltese, and Polish. Yeah. That was assigned or awarded. The only one that wasn't awarded was into Irish. Oh. <laughs> so, so that remained... <laughs> Unassigned. There we go. This is like a heads up to LSPs, you know, start uh, start focusing on the Irish language. There's plenty of demand from uh, the European the European Union, the public sector. Oh, there's maybe there's gotta be so really much demand. <laughs> well, I mean, look at look at these these others. I mean, li into Lithuanian. So it's English, French, German, Italian and, and Spanish into Lithuanian. And yeah. the lot was worth one and a half million euros. So you can build a nice little LSP just based on that particular Lithuanian target language. And you got yeah, Maltese, yeah. Polish, Croatian, etc. So, yeah, um, that's uh, there's that could feasibly right be there. one person, though. They've got like English and French into Irish. You could have one person or collection of people who speak. You know, English, French into Irish. That, that's just one one particular award here, and uh, oh, okay. I don't I know if you want to be the if you do you want to be the person that translates all the European legislation. <laughs> not, not me personally. Gaelic. I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't. You know, meet the criteria. Not speaking Irish, but uh, uh, you never know. Yeah. I went. I went to university with somebody who was an Irish native and English native speaker who was studying translation and also spoke French. So I think she was kind of destined for a career in. Uh, in the sort of European public sector as well. So, you know, there you go. Maybe she's ended up there. Maybe she's there now. Absolutely. So from Ireland, Irish Gaelic to Scottish Gaelic, you know, there's the segue. So there was a tweet um, because of a mistranslation, kind of a Google Translate, one of those stories, right? So apparently the Scottish government has, um, uh, on Twitter, they posted a tweet uh, Wishing people a happy Burns Night. Now, I mm. actually don't know what happy Burns Night is. Uh, it, it seems to be, an, well, it's an individual call. Should Burns, ask Monica. Right? <laughs> yeah, we should have asked Monica. <laughs> so the thing is, apparently, uh, the translation, so they wished it, there was a tweet with an image, go look it up. It says happy Burns Night, but then the actual uh, translation into Scottish Gaelic literally mm. translated Burns is like to burn, flame burn, not the person yeah. burn. The name. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, that was that. That's not good. That's uh, that's not great. And so the tweet from uh, there was one tweet that said, "So glad the Scottish government has a salaried Gaelic officer who trusts Google Translate to know the difference between heat burns and the surname burns." I'm not going to try to uh, pronounce, pronounce the, uh, mm. the the Scottish Gaelic. So let me give you another segue right there. So mm. I googled difference between Scottish Gaelic and Irish Gaelic. Okay. And apparently, because I didn't know, I mean, totally different, similar. They are related. Both have their origin in the language of the Gaels, G-A-E-L-S. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Gaels are people who settled in Ireland from mainland Europe. And after settling in Ireland, some of them moved uh, north to Scotland and the Isle of Man. Um, and the language of the Gaels changed as they moved east from Ireland uh, in the 6th and 7th 
century, right? And so basically, right now, it appears that the general consensus is that Irish Gaelic and Scottish Gaelic have enough differences to be considered a different language. You know, it's like 1,500 years, 1,400 years. That, that's a long time for languages to kind of evolve, right? It's kind of German, Dutch, mm. this type of difference, right? They look very similar in the same way, way kind of that Spanish and Portuguese apparently are similar. And uh, like when you just look at the, the written word and when spoken, though, they're very different and enough differences apparently to can be considered different languages. Now, this I got from Googling, kind of difference between Scottish Gaelic and Irish Gaelic. And the first website that was pulled up was from a company called NZTC International. And that is a Straker company. Mm. So yes, that's some, some good. That was a very long segue. <laughs> That was a lo very long segue. I mean, it was it was justified. It was like interesting in and of itself. So, uh, but there you yeah, go. now now but we have arrived at Straker. Okay, we have arrived at Straker that acquires companies with a great SEO game. Boom. So, what's what's happening with Straker? Give us the I don't know two minutes. Thing, <laughs> we had so many financial results in there. So yeah, let's, uh, let's well, keep it short. Uh, Straker, another listed company that has reported, uh, given an update on its revenue. So the latest quarter to December uh, thirty one, twenty twenty one. Um, they was did it good, good growth, or bad? Was it good or bad? Um, which was excellent. And okay, good. Um, they have. Yeah, good growth in the in the quarter. So they delivered 15 million New Zealand dollars, about roughly 10 million US dollars. So up um, a whopping 99% from the same quarter the last year, which is pretty good. So half of that was it was M and A, and half of that was organic. So they yeah done a few acquisitions since then. They said they had better than expected organic growth, also modest contribution from M and A. Um, just as a reminder, you had Lingo Tech that they acquired in um, February 2021, probably their, la well, their largest acquisition to date. Most recently, they also acquired um, Edest, Idest, which is a Belgium-based LSP, and that actually services, um, does a lot in the European public sector. Um, and they said... Right. Come full did, circle, did, yeah. <laughs> did they say that Irish was their main problem? They did or, not mention no? Irish, okay. no, but they said the acquisition of uh, iDest opens up the largest translation market in Europe through the established relationships with major enterprise customers and partners, including the UN and the European Commission. So Straker did very well. Um, also, its shares climbed um, quite a lot on the day that the results came out and their uh, market cap is around $77 million. So not quite $1.2 billion, huh? Um, Not yet, no. But, you know, let's see. We'll we'll have um, Grant Straker, the CEO, at SlaterCon Remote. So looking forward to Very his nice. presentation and outlining, um, outlining the trajectory there. So if, if I was a investment advisor and I'm not, mm. um, would I? No, that's a bad, that's a bad matter. Hang on. So basically, let me just, there, there's one, we looked at the, uh, we looked at a research report uh, from a company called Ord Minette. Yeah, and they have a buy rating on them on Straker with a higher risk assessment level. So you know, looks like uh, they're bullish on on Straker. So well, let's head over to the MT Literacy Project with Lim yeah. Bowker. Looking, Looking forward, forward to, to that. And welcome back, everyone, to SlaterPod. Today, we're joined by Dr. Lynn Bowker. Uh, Lynn is, the, is a professor of uh, Translation Studies and Information Science at the University of Ottawa. Hi, Lynn. Hi. Hi, Lynn. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. 
Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining. So you're joining us from, from Ottawa or from somewhere else? No, I'm in Ottawa this morning. Uh, we're expecting more snow, so I'm planning to stay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good, good for you. You get the snow, we get the rain, but in the mountains, there's like meters of uh, of snow. So I'm kind of envy you. I like it, I like <laughs> the white thing. Um, great. So today we're going to talk a lot about machine translation. You, you, uh, you're running a very, very interesting project, uh, machine translation literacy, literacy project. But first, just tell us a bit more about the University of Ottawa School of Translation and Interpretation. Give us a sense of kind of the university size and, and the courses size, uh, faculty courses, etc. Yeah, so I work at the University of Ottawa, which is um, uh, a bilingual university. It's actually the only um, fully bilingual university in Canada. It's in the capital city of Ottawa, so that kind of makes sense because Canada has two official languages, French and English. It's uh, quite a large university by Canadian standards. We have about 45,000 students, um, maybe 40 roughly 40 or 38, maybe undergrad and a uh, thousand undergrad and uh, six or 7,000 grad students. So it's, it's a decent sized university, certainly by Canadian standards. Within the university, uh, I work at the School of Translation and Interpretation. That's my home department. And I have a cross appointment to the School of Information Studies, which is um, uh, sort of like a secondary appointment. So my main home is in translation, and I, I have a, a cross appointment, we call it, to information studies. At the School of Translation, we have uh, programs at all three levels. So we have a, a sort of professionally oriented bachelor's program where we are really intending to train students to go out and work in the professional translation world. And we also have a professionally oriented master's program that's focused on conference interpreting. And then we have some research programs as well, both a master's and PhD program in uh, translation studies, we call it. And uh, that's where students are entering the world of research. Um, they do have some coursework to do, but of course, a, a big focus of, of their program at that point is working on a thesis uh, of a, a sort of larger research project uh, with some supervision from, uh, from a professor. Uh, we're about 10 regular professors at the school. Um, about half of us are Anglophones and the other half Francophone. And we have uh, support from uh, part-time or adjunct professors as well, many of whom work in the translation industry and then might come and teach, uh, bring their specialized knowledge to share with our students on a part-time basis. So Lynn, in terms of your personal uh, background and route into uh, what it is that you're doing now, I mean, you've got a long history of working in leadership positions in the higher education sector, um, but can you go through a little bit of your academic background and tell us what drew you to translation studies and technologies in particular? Yeah, it's um, probably uh, sort of not an obvious origin story because I grew up in quite a small town in southwestern Ontario, so not too far from the Great Lakes, if anyone can sort of orient themselves with the, the, the Great Lakes uh, in Canada. So Ontario sort of in the in the middle um, and in quite a small town. And at my school, we didn't have many options for languages, but we are living in Canada. And so French was offered as uh, as sort of uh, what we call a core course. 
for mm -hmm. school kids. And so I really just kind of enjoyed French. It was it felt very exotic. And uh, I just I really enjoyed it. And when I started looking at what you could actually do with, you know, uh, studies in French, um, I actually was influenced a little bit by the older sister of a, of a kid in my class who had decided to go and study translation. And at the time, I have to admit, very naive, I really didn't even understand that there was a difference between translation and interpretation. And, you know, I thought, oh, my goodness, I'll be like traveling the world and, and you know, uh, working at the UN, UN and, and all those kind of things, yeah. kid dreams. And so I decided to to pursue it. But when I actually got into the program, I realized I'm much better suited to translation than interpretation. It's, um, mm -hmm. you know, they're Yes, they have some overlap, but they also have some major differences. And I learned early on and quite happily that I'm a better translator than interpreter. And uh, so I actually also was a student at the institution where I teach now. So I, I kind of um, did my bachelor's degree at the University of Ottawa. And I had the amazing fortune just to meet a professor who was a, really a visionary. Her name was Ingrid Meyer, and she's unfortunately passed away. But she was the leader, the person who brought technology to the School of Translation and Interpretation. And at that time, it sounds funny, but technology was kind of like, you know, word processing. Uh, the school was a little bit of a leader. We were doing word processing and um, terminology management with, with very simple DOS-based interface tools. And when I went to do my work placement, because the program had a work placement component, uh, I was out in the field uh, working, and the the place that I was working at didn't even have word processors at that time. So they were uh, handwriting their translations and sending them to a typing pool, literally. So even though it sounds crazy to think that word processing was cutting edge technology, it was back in the 1980s. So um, so that was my introduction. Even then, I could see the potential of technology for making translators' lives easier. So um, this uh, professor, Professor Ingrid Meyer, had a very close collaboration with a professor in the computer science department. And she actually is the one who encouraged me to do graduate studies. So I stayed and did my master's degree at the University of Ottawa as well. And I got to collaborate with this um, team, Professor Meyer in translation and Professor Skuse in computer science. And they were working uh, particularly on uh, what they called a knowledge-based approach to terminology management. So they had developed a, a prototype uh, knowledge-based term bank. And that was my, um, my master's thesis, was working on part of that uh, project. Mm. So that was really exciting. And then, of course, I had I was bitten by the bug, by the research bug, and I wanted to do more. Uh, at that time, there was no doctoral program in Ottawa um, at, in translation. And there was really nothing in kind of what we now would call computational linguistics. There, there was nothing in Canada. Um, you could do linguistics, but not with a strong computational element. So I started looking um, elsewhere and was very, very lucky to get uh, funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council in Canada. And that allowed me to go to the UK. And I did my doctorate in Manchester at what was then the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology, which has since kind of um, merged with the University of Manchester. 
so that was the that was my uh, doctoral um, location. I continued working for my PhD primarily on terminology and and computers. Um, but uh, of course, UMIST was the home to uh, uh, the Eurotra, uh, the UK part of the Eurotra project, which was an early machine translation project. And I got to work there with people like Harold Summers, who's a big name in machine translation, and uh, and some of his other colleagues. And so that was uh, my exposure. M Manchester had a master's degree uh, in machine translation specifically, one of the uh, one of the earliest ones, I believe. So although I wasn't on that program, I was still in that crowd. I was mixing with those people and, and really um, became a, a big fan of machine translation at that point. Great. Yeah. And then tell us a little bit about the current uh, machine translation literacy project that, that Florian mentioned you're working on. Just in a nutshell, what is the project and, and why were you inspired to do research in, in this area? Well, I've spent my whole life in the translation field, but you know, when Google released their first uh, free online machine translation system back in 2006, about, um, hmm. it was a game changer because it meant that machine translation was all of a sudden what we might call like in the wild. It was out of the hands of professionals and into the hands of anyone who had an internet connection. So that, that was huge. And, what I've started to see is that, um, you know, people with a background in translation bring a very different perspective to using machine translation than people who don't. And, you know, it's not really surprising, right? Um, you know, mechanics bring a different perspective to a car than, than me as a driver of a car, right? I can use it, but I'm not a mechanic. I don't understand all the ins and outs of it. Um, and I don't necessarily need to, but there are some things that I do need to know, right? I need to know how to use the brakes. I need to know how to adjust the mirrors. There are some some things that I do need to know to be a good driver. And so it, it sort of occurred to me that these people who have no background in translation, well, why would they be smart users of it? Uh, so I wanted this machine translation literacy project essentially to be almost like an awareness raising campaign. Um, you know, they're... That the technology itself is very easy to use. When we think about technology, we often think that the learning we need to, to do is a sort of how-to. You know, which button should I push? What, where should I click? Uh, what order should I do these things in? But machine translation's not really like that. It's a very, very easy technology to use in terms of, you know, copy, paste, click. And sometimes that's a little bit dangerous because we can almost be on autopilot. We, we don't necessarily think about what we're doing because it, it doesn't require a, a huge you know, cognitive uh, effort to, to, to copy, paste, and click. And really, the work of machine translation is not about how to, but it's about asking questions like whether or not to. You know, should I be using machine translation for this particular task? And... Translators have such a such a background and and it's like sort of second nature to them, you know, evaluating what's the purpose of the text, who's the intended target audience, all of those things that translators ask themselves naturally, other people don't. And so I thought there seemed to be a, a big scope for including a machine translation component into what we might call just sort of digital literacy. Right? Digital literacy emerged as technologies taken up a larger and larger part of space in our everyday lives. And machine translation is one, one technology that's part of that package now. 
People have such easy access to it. It's on their phone. They take it with them wherever they go. Sometimes it's even embedded in other tools, right? They don't even have to consciously use it. It could be um, sort of invisible almost to them, embedded in their social media or something like that. Um, so I decided that really um, it's a way for translators to give back and almost like almost like a sort of social responsibility. We mm. know how to use these tools. And so we should be generous and help other people make good use of them, too. In, in one of your YouTube uh, lectures that, that, that I watch in preparation for this, there's a one sequence where you say, usually um, people's perception of MT is kind of on the two extremes. Like either it's like great and magic and amazing, or it's like, oh, my God, this is the most ridiculous error ever. Like, do you have any data or any proportion? Like, where, where do where do where does like the average consumer lie on that spectrum? Is it, can you just give us a sense? I, I don't have any hard data, but there was a super interesting study done by um, a professor Lukas Nunez Vieira at the University of Bristol, and he did an investigation of how machine translation is represented in the popular media. So he looked at, you know, really? newspapers for over, a, over quite a long period and uh, sort of analyzed the presentation of it. And, and he's the one who really found that it's quite polarizing, that on the one hand, there's people who are almost thinking we're living in a Star Trek uh, kind of science fiction type of world. And at the other end, um, there are journalists who portray machine translation as being useless because it can't do things like translate poetry, which, of course, we in the translation field know machine translation was never designed to translate poetry. That was not the main driving force behind it. So journalists themselves are not necessarily expert in machine translation. So so it's a it's a kind of dominoes effect. You know, the the people mm -hmm. who are not experts presenting their view to other people who aren't experts and the truth lies somewhere in between. I can't give you an exact proportion of, of who believes in, in which extreme, but we know that those are the principal messages that are out there. There's just a lack of nuance around the, um, the discussion of machine translation. I really want to put that, uh, that paper, that research in our show notes, because I've been thinking about this for like four or five years, like to collect more than an editorial, not a, a proper research project, but for one of our articles, just collect people's kind of the population's perception of MT. It's it, every time I come across somebody like who's not from the industry commenting on it in a podcast or like, you know, one of those mistranslation uh, articles. Uh, yeah, I'd love to aggregate it. So great. It's funny. It's, it I think notes. it's because people, you know, every uh, everybody speaks a language. And so people feel a certain expertise on linguistic subjects that yeah. uh, comes just by being a speaker. And, and so perhaps they are kind of um, speaking a little bit out of turn, not necessarily knowing what they're talking about and uh, mm. and then perpetuating some of these, um, you know, skewed perspectives. <laughs> Coming back to the literacy project, uh, what uh, what other members of the team are there? Have you got uh, other people from the university or from your department involved? And how are you all collaborating, if so? So we have uh, people who are on the team at the university, primarily uh, students at all levels, um, including mm -hmm. postdoctoral. So we have uh, graduate students from both um the School of Translation, but also from the library science side as well, the information school. Um, and then we also have, uh, we, we do work closely with people who are 
not this, this is a, a project that came out of a grant funding so that I kind of mm. consider the immediate team the people who are are funded with and through the grant but there are colleagues in other universities that are interested in very similar topics and so I have quite a good relationship with colleagues in France in the Netherlands in Finland and so we are kind of working you know together um uh, overlapping um we're all uh i think w with the, the spirit of wanting to make more resources available so we're all kind of working towards making open resources and collaborating to kind of compile them together we that's sort of the next phase of things we've all kind of developed our own little things and we're going to be sort of pooling them and making a much bigger kind of um yeah, sort of collection of resources available. So um, there's a project at the moment in in um, the EU, which is called Multi-Train MT, which is also about helping multilingual citizens in the European Union um, become uh, smarter users of MT as well. So there are other mm -hmm. projects going on, and I do think I have a good relationship with those projects, um, even though they're not, you know, technically working on this team. It's it's definitely a, a collaborative effort in the wider translation community. Speaking about using MT uh, or having users, broad, broader base of users using it, you, you recently published on, and I'm going to have to read this off, so Chinese speakers use of MT as an aid for scholarly writing in English. And another one was, uh, your research papers was, MT literacy instruction for international business students and business English instructors. So very interesting. So MT helping Chinese speakers in scholarly writing and then generally for you know business students. I mean, I'm here in Switzerland. English is not the native language. Everyone's using DeepL or Google Translate. Uh, so tell me a bit more about those two and, and just some of the findings from, from those two very interesting papers. Yeah. So my my goal, my broad goal with the Machine Translation Literacy Project when I started was like super ambitious. I'm going to help everyone who's not a translator be a better user of machine translation. And it didn't take me very long before I realized, you know, the the, the general public is not one audience. It's made up of many yeah. smaller audiences. So I kind of recalibrated a little bit and said, okay, I can't help everyone at the same time because actually different users need different types of guidance. A teenager might need something different than a business student who might need something different than, you know, a nurse or somebody else. <clears throat> so I said, okay, well, who should I start with? And I decided that I would start with um, people who were available to me, who were kind of on my doorstep, and that was international students. So the University of Ottawa has quite a high percentage of international students. And so I started working with them and um, I had, I was approached, I was offering some small workshops through the library. And then I was approached by um, teachers of English as a second language who said, we have many international students in our courses and we're wondering if you could design something that could help us in particular. So that's how I ended up working with those two groups. Um, at two different universities. Um, one, I was working with the business students at um, Concordia University in Montreal, which is not too far from Ottawa, and the um, Chinese-speaking students were at the University of Ottawa. So it was through um, a sort of second language learning context that I came into contact with them when their, when their teachers reached out. And so 
what I find is that the international students who are coming to Canada and needing to submit work for their courses to their professors in English, for example, are looking at machine translation as a sort of writing aid. They need hmm. to write something for their professor and they are struggling a little bit to write completely independently in English. And so they're looking at machine translation as a tool to help them um, Usually, I have to say, like, fill the gaps, right? It's not like they won't even try to write in English, but they do need support uh, that goes beyond what a dictionary might offer, for example. Mm -hmm. So they are looking at it. And for these students, uh, a really interesting revelation, and this is what I mean, like, you know, for if I, well, I'm going to say this, and you're not going to be surprised, but these students are shocked. This idea of garbage in, garbage out had never occurred to them. Mm-hmm. They it, it, they just really had no concept of being able to improve the quality of the output text by improving the quality of the input text. And of course, this is exactly suited to their need. If they are a native speaker of Chinese, that's their strong language. That's where they have the chance to influence the text by, by providing a really well-written, unambiguous source text. And it just never occurred to them. They would just write something quickly, feed it through the machine translation system, and struggle to patch up the English output in their weaker language. So even this like tiny little piece of information, which to a translator is, you know, second nature, it's a revelation to, to them and, and really can be a game changer for them to get better kind of use, make better use of the of this technology. I think it's super yeah. interesting to think about the specific use cases. You know, you've identified a couple there, uh, you know, of students. It's really interesting to think about why and how people use some of these um, free online MT systems. You know, I, I would probably nav- tend towards thinking that everybody's sort of a casual business user where they're like, mm-hmm. oh, I've got an email. What does it say? But of course, that's not yeah. that's not how everybody engages. Um, but I mean, just generally on on the use of you know, the free online MT systems, I mean, do you see sort of strong pros and some cons in terms of um, how they're being used, maybe where they're suitable and or not? Absolutely. I mean, as I said, the sort of, you know, my first instinct that like the general public was one group of users was was so wrong. You're right. There's so many different use cases out there. And some of them are um, what we might describe as lower risk or lower stakes. And then some of them are much higher stakes. And that's, I think, where there's a lot of work to be done with with non-translator users. It's in this um, developing their judgment uh, and risk assessment. You know, they really need to stop and ask themselves, what is this text going to be used for? And if it's for their own personal consumption, um, particularly if it's for like a hobby or even entertainment, right? Like um, there are lots of kids out there, teens who are using machine translation to to translate manga comics and anime kind of things just for fun, like just pure pleasure. And of course, the the stakes there are very low of getting a poor translation, right? Like the worst thing that's going to happen is that you're going to be disappointed you didn't really understand the manga comic. It's like not life or death for sure, that situation. Um, but then we also hear some stories and COVID-19 has brought a lot of it to the to the forefront 
about um, you know health agencies using machine translation to communicate with um, you know the public and some mistranslations. There was one example that I read about um, about uh, a health agency in the United States who had um, used machine translation on their website. Uh, they were in fact trying to encourage people to get vaccinated, but what they what they the, the text was uh, into Spanish and it was mistranslated. Instead of saying the vaccine is not mandatory or not, you know, required, what it ended up saying was the vaccine is not necessary. And that's a completely different message. And that's a, mm. you know, really, um, uh, uh, there's some real consequences, some real bite to that. So I think there, you know, that the places where it's not a good idea to have raw machine translation. It doesn't mean there's no role for machine translation, but we don't want to have raw machine translation, unedited machine translation. When there are risks to people's health, um, we've also heard some kind of very difficult stories about um, immigration, machine translation being used in immigration situations. And, you know, some somebody's life is hanging in the balance there. You're, you're you know, making a huge decision about someone's future um, you don't necessarily want to trust that to raw machine translation. So I think there's education to be done about, you know, higher stakes and lower stakes tasks and where we can use it without, you know, being too worried and where we need to, you know, really give it a second thought. And as I said, it doesn't mean there's no role for machine translation, but maybe we're, we're not going to go with just the raw unedited machine translation in those higher mm. risk situations. How do you think about confidentiality, privacy? For example, we recently covered this. Uh, I don't know. It was a, it was a nice story, nice nice uh, traffic driving story about Swiss Postal Service blocking and then unblocking DeepL because of privacy concerns. Uh, now they, they did it. It's a giant. It's like Switzerland's biggest employer or second biggest employer. Uh, so they blocked it for like eighty thousand people, and then there was a huge uproar, and people were like fighting back, like no, 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 we need DeepL, we need Google Translate. So they unblocked it. They kept it blocked for the the banking arm, like Post Finance, um, because of confidentiality and and kind of regulatory concerns. W what are your thoughts around that confidentiality, privacy uh, for kind of using these free online tools? Yeah, again, it's something that um, you know people are surprised to learn. Most people, and you know, myself included, don't read the terms and conditions of every single app and program and site uh, that I go to. You know, like uh, they all have their terms and conditions, but a lot of us just click through, accept, agree, or whatever, and don't read them. So it, it's a again a, one of these things that's kind of a revelation to uh, people outside the translation industry that free online um, tool providers. Uh, often have in their terms and conditions something that says they they are able to keep your data, they are able to reuse it, repurpose it, maybe for continued training of the machine translation system, maybe for other things. Um, and, you know, again, I think a lot of the things that everyday users use machine translation for are not highly confidential, mm -hmm. but it only takes, you know, one or two slips. Maybe it is health information that you put in there. Maybe it is banking information. And so um, when I have shared this with uh, with the students, they're, again, their initial reaction is, is shock, horror. And then they kind of shake their head and they're like, you know, now that I think about it, I'm not surprised. I probably should have realized that, but they don't. So it is worth just that nudge. Um, again, you know, you just, just 
use your judgment, think twice. You can enter a lot of text and still leave out the critical bits, right? So, so mm -hmm. that you can still get a lot of the text translated, but you're not giving away the essential private information. In the translation industry, I think it's different. And that's not the community that I've been targeting with this project. Yeah. But um, but I think there's, you know, some awareness uh, raising to, to happen within the translation community as well um, about, um, yeah, client confidentiality, because in, in those cases, it's sort of not necessarily personal information, right? With the users outside the translation community, they're more likely to share like personal sensitive information when it's within the translation community. I mean, the client has different reasons for keeping, you know, or what they consider confidential um, information that, that translators need to be aware of. So that's a, an example of where machine translation literacy is important for different people, but different people need different uh, types of information as part of that literacy training. So it's not like MT literacy can just be one thing. I think there's going to be some core elements that are relevant to everyone, but there's also some customization that needs to happen for different user mm. groups. Mm. Let's take a step back from um, from the MT angle and go to uh, educating kind of the next next generation of, of translators, uh, interpreters. I, I see there's this... Um, this balance now that you need to teach obviously the core skill of language competency and domain expertise in certain you know areas that they're that they want to maybe pr pursue a career but then there's also hey you you probably should understand the basics of python or like how a neural networks how do you how do you manage this balance like on the one hand obviously those are linguists so that's the core competency but you don't want to you know you don't want to overload it but by then like having half of the curriculum being like Python programming. How do you balance that? It's getting harder. It's getting harder because everything that you add to the curriculum usually means taking something else out because yeah. we still have a fixed, you know, period of time. We're not all of a sudden offering a 10-year BA because nobody would sign up for that. Um, so you're right. It's getting harder. <laughs> um, we have seeing that, you know, some of the things that we used to have to literally teach, like I was talking about myself, like I learned how to word process in my, you know, translation and computers course. Well, obviously, we don't do that anymore. So some things have um, kind of uh, become more part of our general knowledge, general culture. Uh, but other things are, are being, you know, uh, added all the time. And Python is, is a great example. How we're handling it for the moment is that we are teaching what we sort of see as core technology tools. So we are looking at terminology management tools, uh, translation memory tools, machine translation, concordancers, and how especially how all of those can work together in a kind of suite of tools. The Python programming at the moment is offered, but it's not compulsory. So for students mm. who are really tech oriented who really want it they can get it but it's not something that we are um, kind of building into our core program we have collaborations at our institute and I, I don't think it's um uh, unique to us but with other units so for example at the university of ottawa there's a program in digital humanities and they they are ones who offer the the python programming courses and we would recognize that as an elective that could count towards our program for a student who wanted to do that mm -hmm. How how was all of the teaching happening during lockdowns and during during the yeah during pandemic generally? I mean, did, <laughs> did that change what you were able or what you wanted to do um, in translation studies? I guess it might have had more of an impact on the conference interpreting, but what adjustments did did you see? 
Yeah, we all had to make a pretty quick transition. I think uh, pretty much everywhere around the world from from in person to online. Uh, we had previously uh, offered some parts of our program. So we allow people who don't want to do the full BA to still get a certificate, for example. And we had offered a certificate, which is like six pro six courses from the translation program. Uh, we had, were already offering that online. So that was an advantage. We already had some courses that had specifically been designed for online. So that was good. And some professors who knew how to do that. Um, and other courses had been what we call hybrid, which was, um, you know, maybe uh, some weeks in person and other weeks online. So they were sort of partly um, online already. So, so that was a real advantage because, um, you know, we weren't starting from zero. But there was still a lot of work to do. I mean, we're very lucky now that many of the tools, we don't have to install them locally uh, in our computer lab. Like we can access them through the cloud. So that's a huge advantage. I mean, if this pandemic had happened even five years ago, I think we would have struggled. Um, but we're, so we're really lucky to have these cloud options now, which kind of allowed a sort of seamless um, transition, at least from that respect of accessing tools and being able to use them. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing what you can do through a simple browser these days. Yeah. yeah. Practically everything. So just uh, 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 to end on a goal and next steps note for the Empty Literacy Project, what's the one, two, three here, uh, your uh, horizon, next steps project, goals, et cetera? So I've been convinced by working with uh, first-year university students that actually this information could be valuable to them even in secondary school. So that's sort mm. of one of the things that I'd like to do next. And of course, I'm trying to think about a smart way of doing it. You know, me as an individual or even my team as, you know, half a dozen individuals, we can only reach so many people directly. And what I'm thinking now is that this empty literacy, like it really doesn't need to be a standalone package. It, it, it really fits in my mind well with digital literacy and information literacy more generally. And these are uh, subjects that are taught in high school. So, so kids in high school or secondary studies are learning digital literacy skills and learning information literacy skills. So my, my, wish and what I'm hoping to do next is to kind of connect with teacher training here at the University of Ottawa. So we have a faculty of education and I'm really hoping to be able to sort of train the trainers. Like if I could get in front of hmm. the people who are training to become teachers and, you know, kind of get machine translation literacy incorporated in that digital literacy curriculum then those teachers, I, you know, I could teach the teachers and the teachers would go on to reach, you know, thousands of students at the secondary level. And so I think that's a much smarter way. But I'd also like to encourage other people in the translation community to, to be doing similar things. I mean, even sharing those infographics that you mentioned, right? It's not, a, it, it's not a really... It's not like really difficult knowledge to share. Like I said, it's it's not revolutionary, uh, certainly to people in the translation industry. And it does often doesn't take much for people outside the, the translation community to kind of see the light bulb go off, right? Like just this, a simple thing like telling them, you know, don't put your personal information in there. Do, don't you know that that information can be kept and, and shared or, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Like they're they're fairly simple concepts. Because we're not trying to train people to become translators. We're not trying mm. to give them translator 
knowledge. What we want is for them to just to realize, like, you can use this technology in a slightly smarter way and see benefits. So it's not like competing with translators. We're not training. And these people aren't interested in becoming translators, right? That's not their goal either. They're not looking to become professional translators. They just want to, you know, kind of make better use of a, of a tool that's available to them. So, so training the trainers and working with teachers is one big thing. And I do think there's other ways of connecting with teens as well. I'm a big fan of libraries, as you might have guessed. I have a kind of cross appointment to the, to the library school. So I've been working mostly with academic libraries right now to, to reach students at universities. But the public library is another kind of venue which has enormous potential for reaching families, kids, teens. And so I'd, I'd also like to do more work uh, moving forward with the public library as a, just as another kind of um, group who are open to sharing information and, and sort of supporting uh, people in the community. I think what you're doing is extremely valuable because we, we, we're, we have this kind of myopic view in the translation industry that everything's kind of revolving around this activity. But actually, if you detach yourself, this is literally a 0.01% issue for most people on the planet. And, you know, why, why wouldn't they think it's magic? And obviously yeah. the output is going to be 100% correct. So, uh, yeah, I think to inject some, um, uh, I don't know, a critical view on, on these technologies is really valuable. And I think, yeah, starting with like secondary students is, is, is a great is a great place to start. So congrats. Great, great project. Thank you so much. So, well, thank you so much for taking time uh, to join us on today's pod. And uh, thank you. And hopefully we meet in real life at some point. That would be excellent. Thanks, yes. Lynn. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you All very right. much. Thanks.